you have to create meaning around the thing that you do. I think the intention separates a lot of people who are just like making stuff for fun. But I feel like if you want to make something that lasts a bit longer, you need to have a an intention behind it. You need to have a story to tell. How does one get better at making music? Making it every day. I think that's the simplest answer. You just have to practice and practice. You have to want it. You have to want to do it. And you have to do it even when you don't want it. Some days you sit down and nothing comes out. You just realize that that's part of the, the gig. That's bound to happen. That will happen in the future. It's happened before. There's no need to worry. It's just gave me a lot of joy and it's just it's these one it's these few things in life that gives me this that I can sit down and I forget to eat and I forget to drink and I forget everything so essentially it's you get into the flow state and you're just like going Today, I am in the house with Kupla. Kupla, how are you doing? Hi, I'm, I'm very good, thank you. So, a brief introduction. My name is Kupla. Uh, well, my artist name is Kupla. My real name is Lauri Akte. I'm from Finland, originally, and from Helsinki. Um, I was born in 1988 in Helsinki. Um, I lived in London, UK for about eight years, between 2012 and 2020. Uh, finished my university degree there, did my master's in sound arts, which was uh, kind of like a philosophy of arts and sound design in the same package. Um, I've been playing the piano since I was a kid. I've been making music on a computer since I was a kid. I've been playing magic since 1995. Actually, I've started playing piano in 1995 as well. So those are the two things that have kind of traveled with me all these years. And yeah, I'm a profi right professional musician. Uh, nowadays been making music full time for six years uh, under the artist name Kupla. How did you come up with the artist name Kupla? Um, so back in 2012, 2011, Mm. I had just met my girlfriend, my current wife, and she told me that she's moving to London. Um, so I had to come up with a plan, what am I going to do? So two of my sisters were living in London then as well, and they said, come here to study. Um, so I did. So I took this apartment for three months. I paid in cash, like three months in advance, and I prepared for my university portfolio. So it was that sound sound arts degree. So I'd been composing and making music for several years already then. And, and I had to come up with a name for the portfolio to the university. And Kupla means a bubble or a sphere in Finnish. Uh, so I was wondering, I was doing like Excel spreadsheets of potential names. And Kupla was five letters. It kind of sounded cool. It's, you know, it looked all right. So and it meant like a sphere or a bubble, and I, I felt like okay, this is uh, this is my own bubble, this is my portfolio. I'll name it this way, and then I started a SoundCloud profile under the name, and it wasn't supposed to be like a long, long project at all. Um, 
by the year then I just ended up not deleting the page and I just kept on uploading stuff that I was making and and yeah <laughs> we're still here <laughs> 10 years later more than that <laughs> very cool so is there something about the is there something about the meaning of is the spear or 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 a ball right is there is there some significance to you in terms of your art your music or your personality or some combination so initially i was yeah so over 10 years ago before kupla came to be i i was making music for a long time and i was always trying to i guess please my audience i didn't have an audience but i was trying to kind of make stuff that i thought that people would like to listen to and that led me to mm, I don't know, follow the current production trends and um, maybe kind of try to, to, well, just essentially try to make stuff that people like. But then when I when I made the portfolio, I made Kupla, I just kind of gave up on that. I figured I'll enjoy making this way more if I just make stuff that I enjoy listening to. And if other people like it as well, it's easier for me to spread the word, essentially. So, yeah, I kind of accepted that, okay, this is my own bubble, this is my own sphere. Um, but it doesn't matter because I'm doing this primarily for myself. And, yeah, if people come along, then they come along. And that's the, the significance, the meaning behind it, pretty much. So that's the tale or that's the meaning behind it. And you mentioned playing the piano when you were when you were very young and yeah how how did you start playing music in the first place was it was it your parents that encouraged you was it just something natural that you you picked up or what 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 was it so i was 7 years old um when my mom asked asked me if i'd like to go to piano lessons um and you know i've been kind of jamming on the keys at my grandma's house then <laughs> Um, so it wasn't a completely unfamiliar environment. Uh, so I said, yeah, <laughs> he wandered in. Yeah. I was seven years old. My, my parents asked me if I'd like to go to the piano lessons. They asked my younger sister as well. We both said yes. And there was this, um, kind of like university halls where like music students were living nearby where we lived in West, Western Helsinki. Uh, and they they were doing cheap piano lessons. So we went there. I think my younger sister did a few weeks, maybe a month. Uh, and I did almost two years at that place. And then I applied to... Um, so they recommended... I think it was at the university halls where the, where the piano and the music students, they recommended that I should probably apply to a conservatory. So I was around nine or ten years old, and I applied to Pop and Jazz Conservatory in Helsinki. Uh, and I got in there, and I played. I went to piano lessons and music theory there for about five years, I think. I was about 15 years old when I stopped going to, to the lessons. And around that time, I was kind of taking my summer job money and investing into, like, music gear at home and making music on the computer. So I wasn't that interested in acoustic piano then there were other things like like electronic music and 
composing on the computer that seemed cooler, <laughs> essentially. Um, I kind of still regret because between 15 and 25, like I had a good 10 years that I wasn't really practicing the piano, but I was practicing practicing music production and electronic music, like make, just making stuff on the computer. Uh, and it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I picked up, like really, really wanted to learn the piano again. And yeah. What was it about electronic music or digital music that really appealed to you as a as a young man? Um, when we were kids, my older sister, who's 11, 11 years older than me, um, we used to just stay at home when my parents were away somewhere. And we were watching MTV, music television. So my older sister, she'd lived in London uh, and she'd always bring home friends from England. Uh, and we always had MTV on and it was the prodigy that kind of hooked me. I think it was, it was, it was <laughs> around the time, it was around mm -hmm. the time that the fat of the land came out, I think 96, 95. So there was like mm -hmm. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana, the prodigy. Uh, this was kind of the package that I was really intrigued by and the prodigy, just their sounds, they were so different. They were mm -hmm. so kind of mean sounding and intriguing. Like my younger sister was two years younger than I was. I was six or seven. She was four or, or, or six or five. Um, I don't know. It's just something about the the vibe of the, you know, the. It, it was quite different from the other stuff that you'd you'd hear. I mean, that was my place to listen to music. Like my dad has a massive classical and jazz music vinyl collection, and we'd listen to that like we'd always have classical or jazz playing when I was a kid but then you know when my parents were away and my older sister was looking after us and we were just like suddenly we'd have like rock and like electronic stuff blasting from MTV and it right. was just different and I felt like instantly like connected to it mm -hmm. I'm still a massive Prodigy fan <laughs> I never went away <laughs> <laughs> I, I I like the Prodigy as well yeah, it's um, man, the '90s. I, I I like to use every opportunity to talk about how much I love the '90s and how a part of me is still living in the '90s uh, musically. That is, um, there was just so it was such a crazy time, just because there was stuff that was getting airplay, like The Prodigy. That sometimes you look back and you're just like, how are these guys on the radio? Because it's not just the the style of music, but also the visual style. Like there's, there's something very, very novel about it. I, I, I don't know. Like it, it's just maybe for you as the prodigy, for me, it was stuff like Portishead, Massive Attack. Mm -hmm. It was just, there was a lot of stuff back then that was just, even more main, main, mainstream stuff like Fatboy Slim or Moby or something like that. There's just a lot of interesting stuff at that time, uh, getting yeah, airplay. That... So. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah, I like almost forgot all the names you mentioned are definitely. I mean, they were more like in the calmer, calmer, like down tempo style that I eventually got into mm -hmm. myself as well. But those were definitely my favorites as well. All this kind of instrumental. Prodigy is more beat, beat. the punk of uh, of electronic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I think it was the yeah. the kind of juxtaposing of the 
smooth jazz and classical that we had playing and then the prodigies like older prodigy prodigy songs that were like everybody in the place and all these kind of like early 90s tracks that were just like so different than what i was used to hearing mm -hmm. <coughs> and and you mentioned you know just when you were younger just uh making music perhaps creating beats or uh, sorry, I'm not a I'm not a music person. I never made music, so I I, I apologize if I'm using these terms incorrectly. But uh, I I'm just curious, like how how because I think when you're younger and whether it's music or other things, there's a tendency to experiment. So how how do you if you look back on that time period, right between 15 to 20 or 25, like how how would you describe what you were doing back then? Like was there some sort of style was there some sort of thing that guided you mm, i think it was more about i think it's the same now like I, I was waking making way more i was like when i started i i was making way more like techno and drum and bass and like quite aggressive electronic stuff um i think that's just to imitate the sounds that i heard from like prodigy and these kind of acts um, but at the same time, I was also making like cal calmer instrumentals, like just these laid back beats, like really heavily influ influenced by 90s hip hop. So it was the prodigy that really got me into like the kind of thinking about music production on a computer when I was a kid. And then around the same time, I really got interested in hip hop as well. Um, so like 90s, like Cypress Hill. Uh, so I think this is also part of my older sister giving me Cypress Hill CDs for Christmas when I was eight years old. And I remember my mom asking, like I heard, I was listening to uh, Black Sunday, the album in my room from my stereo. I was eight years old and sitting just like listening to hits from the bong. And my mom asking my sister, like, does he know what they're talking about? And I was thinking, <laughs> like, I was thinking like, who cares? Like, <laughs> and it took, took, took a few decades, or like uh, 10 years, not a few decades, but took about 10 years to really understand where my mom was coming from. Right. But they didn't take the CDs out off of yeah. me. They let me listen to it. I know some friends who whose parents have like, told them, do not listen to this band or that band. And generally, I don't think that's a good way to right. to raise children. <laughs> It, it kind of reminds me of um, what Magic the Gathering went through in the 90s, right? Because there was a point in time when I started playing Magic in the 90s and the, it was considered to be satanic or demonic at some point. So the, I, I guess in the 90s, it was it was games, it was video games. Like there were things that were deemed to be bad influences on children or kids. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, at least in North America. And so, so it, it kind of reminded me, what you're saying kind of reminds me of that where you know that was a time where there was maybe more policing i think i think there was more about it was more about like we need to protect kids from themselves whereas now i think especially post internet I, I think it's just it's just completely different now so yeah, yeah no everything's so yeah. um everything's so accessible now that and it's impossible to to police and say what can be seen and what can't be seen it's a better way is to you know teach kids their own judgment and you know to make mm -hmm. them understand mm -hmm. but yeah absolutely like magic gathering i remember it wasn't it wasn't a thing in finland though like i think 
Finland's always been quite liberal in these kind of like um in in the sense of like when it comes to like religion or things being demonic or you know like how unholy strength the magic card how we got his it's the pentagram removed and all this stuff so he's never even a so when i was growing up in the in in the 90s and playing magic you know no none of our parents or our teachers would say anything about the game it, it was just a kid's game to them they didn't think it as a demonic or a bad influence or whatever if anything my dad was thinking mm. that it was a good a good thing to do because we were learning english at the age of six and seven and eight whereas at school we would have started mm. studying it at the age of 10 or 11 so we were kind of taking a head start for a few years mm. and learning these weird right. there's a kind like, of an educational I, yeah and learning these weird phrases i remember like when i started learning english at 10 uh, we had to write down words that we know that haven't been taught to us at school and i was writing stuff like creatures and summon and exploration and <laughs> <laughs> like magic magic card stuff and you could really and expand that. your vocabulary with magic yes yeah yeah so you learned magic when you were that young when you were was it six years old or 10 years old what was the uh six six or seven i think i was 1994 1995 around that time like fallen in between fallen empires and ice age fourth edition around that time ice age came out well, like late 95 yeah i think around fallen empires and fourth edition uh, that was around the time wow i got a big fat stack of commons from from my cousin who was seven years older than me and they had they had like power they had mocks rubies and time walks in their decks and we were making decks of like fallen like fallen empires bulk and fourth fourth edition bulk uh, <laughs> and got stomped we were making decks with my other younger cousins who were my age like we were seven six seven and my older cousin was 13 14 and i think he enjoyed beating our asses <laughs> in the game so it was your cousin or cousins that introduced you to magic they gave you the is it like a hand-me-downs or they gave you some cards to get started yeah yeah so it was my older cousin who first gave his you know bulk stuff that he didn't need from the boosters that he opened to to his younger uh brother who's one year older than i am and then i think we were having like family dinner or something and then they introduced the game to me and my other cousins and we were like uh four four cousins uh, three of us were the same age and then the older one was seven years older than we were uh of well, no actually six five five six five or six years older than we were but anyway he was an older older guy and doing playing playing the guitar and listening to nirvana and actually he was making music as well so that was a big influence in that in that as well for for me but yeah we we'd spend like family dinners and sometimes i was you know sleeping over at their place and we'd always play magic uh that was around like 95 96 and there's just like magical nights like it's just like evenings that <laughs> kept on going on and on and on and yes. we didn't have a time to go to bed and we'd just play until we couldn't play anymore with like decks of yeah, 120 yeah. and black, were you playing were you playing without the were you playing without the sleeves or was the Mox Ruby unsleeved or did you play with sleeves? I mean, they, 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 they had sleeves. I mean, 
I don't think there were double sleeves around that time. At least I can't remember. But we, I'm, I'm, my first set of sleeves I was making, I cut a binder, like you know, a, a binder that can hold nine cards on a page. So I cut like the binder pages as my sleeves. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was my. But I think you, you, they were selling sleeves, as far as I can remember, at the local card shop. I think we went there around 95, 96. We used to go there with my granddad and my cousins as well. Uh, yeah, they had like big binders of stuff and we just, we had a an allowance to say like, you can have $10 worth of cards you want. And we were like, ah. Oh. And I remember looking at the <laughs> binders and thinking, should I get a Bayou from Revised or should I get a, a Nightmare from Revised? And I was contemplating. And I got the Nightmare <laughs> in the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, the nightmare is a much cooler card. It's just it's true. in hindsight, it's... one is more valuable than the other, right? Yeah. But uh, it's, it's a win condition. It, you, you have to go with the nightmare or the Shivan dragon. Like these are great yeah. creatures, yeah. iconic. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, we actually started at a similar time then because I started in revised edition with my my brother. Even though I was nowhere near Finland, I was in Canada, but. I think it's roughly the same time period. I do remember uh, Fallen Empires and Ice Age and later Mirage Visions uh, fairly well. And it was just, for me, it was just very, very casual magic. And um, when I say I, I, I live in the 90s, I also really like the 90s of magic just because you know this too, right? It's just, there was just so much more mystique about you don't know what cards are out there. There was no internet. And you play against somebody for anti and you could, you could win or lose anything. And it was just, it was just a crazy time. So yeah, we never played anti, but the, the kind of mystique around the cards and sets was definitely there. Like we'd go to my cousin's summer house in the countryside and my older cousin somehow got his hands on an, on an inquest magazine. I don't know if you remember this in inquest. It's like an old, old Oh yes, magic ma- I do. Yeah. Yes. I remember yeah. inquest and the duelist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'd look up cards on Inquest, and they had this uh, like pointing system. So they were giving like one to five points for for each card. So we'd look at the lists, and there are names that we never heard of, and like Arabian Nights and Legends, and anything older than that seemed like impossible to get because the local card shop didn't have any cards from those. And we were looking at the pictures and thinking, "Ooh, what is this? Library of Alexandria getting five stars? Like we need to get our hands on this one." <laughs> And no one seemed to know where to get one and probably like seven-year-old kids couldn't even afford one. Um, but yeah, those were like magical times. And I remember yeah. calling up the, we were playing and we were we were thinking, okay, Le- Leviathan, like this is a cool looking card. Like, I think it was in, in the Inquest magazine, they had a big picture of it and it seemed incredible, like this massive blue fish under, underground swallowing the the lighthouse or, or whatever. And I remember calling up the local card shop and asking, what, what does Leviathan do? <laughs> I was seven years old and they got angry with me and said, please do not call here again asking these kind of questions. <laughs> <laughs> they were concerned that you're going to call asking about every card. That, that would have yeah, been, exactly, been tough probably. to handle the, the phone call volume. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Seven year olds are probably not there. So other than Nightmare, what were some of your favorite cards from that time period? I really liked the, the dual lands. They were kind of like 
they were sort of afford affordable for me to get, like with my weekly or monthly allowance. If I'd saved for a few months, I'd be able to get one. So those were one of my favorites because I really liked making multicolor decks. By I never really had the dual lands for it. Um, I ended up getting the Bayou eventually. That I remember that was my only dual land uh, as a kid. But those were like my cousin had all the dual lands, and they were like all his decks were amazing because of that. So those are like my initial first reaction. Um, but I really liked when I started Magic. I really liked the black cards. Like my younger cousin had a zombie deck. Well, like a, that's a hundred and twenty card, just uh, bulk stuff from from the early sets. But there was something like Royal Assassin, Sorcerer's Queen, Terror. They seemed so imbalanced. Like when I was running with like crab worms and <laughs> like six mana, five, <laughs> five, four vanilla creatures. It's just like someone having a Royal Assassin that can kill anything I attack with seemed like impossible to beat. And Terror, kill anything with two mana. Eventually I got a mono white deck yeah. together and I got Swords of Plowshares in there. And it's just like, okay, now I can compete. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah definitely those early black uh, black cards also yeah Mahamati Jin Shivan Dragon all these kind of classic old cards were on the top of my list mm -hmm. and they still yeah. are yeah, so I recently got into old school like a couple of years ago I, I haven't really been playing old school but I've been co collecting old school cards and uh, one day I'll probably be able to attend like Lobster Con or whatever these big old school tournaments one day Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that that's so that's so funny. I like I mean blacks it, it was and still is my favorite color. Um you just brought back some memories of um when I was playing um uh Royal Assassin and I was so excited that Ice Manipulator was uh was an Ice Age because that's a very very obvious combo, right? And at that point I was so so happy that it was uh it felt like an unstoppable combo. There was just something about black cards or black magic that was really, really appealing to me. I mean, I like I like Mahamoti Jin and Shivan Dragon and that stuff too. And uh, I also remember Fall Empires had the the order of the 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 Aben or Eben hand, and they had the pro protection from white, and they were really good for two mana. And well, at the time they were really good. So, um, and I really enjoyed playing some of the decks back then. For sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, definitely those cards. Like I think eventually we got our mono black decks trimmed down to sixty cards because our cousin told us that that was the way to do it. And that was how they did it in the states and in tournaments. So it's just like dark ritual, hypnotic specter, uh, order of the even hand, terror, royal assassin, icy manipulator. You mentioned it. I mm -hmm. just I almost forgot about it. Yeah, that was a nasty combo. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it's funny, like, when you're building old-school decks nowadays, like, these kind of, the same cards are there, and they're good. <laughs> Which is why I kind of fell in love with the format. Yeah, they're, it's an older format, you can only use, uh, is it, are you, is it, is it like 93, 94? Is that, I, I didn't, I had never played old-school, so it's similar to that, where you can only play cards from the very earlier Additions yeah. of Magic sets. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I got interested in the format two years ago. I haven't played a game of old school yet, but I've been collecting the cards. I'm a, yeah, I'm a big player of Legacy mm -hmm. um, and pre-modern somewhat. Um, 
But yeah, old school is a format that I've been meaning to get into. So I've been collecting mm. some of the cards for it for two years now and slowly getting a deck together. <laughs> it's expensive as hell, which is kind of sad. I mean, but so is Legacy. So is all these old formats. They are. But what What is it about these older formats that... Um that appeal to you right like because uh, i think when we when we met in i think it was london uh yeah, gp london, we were playing yeah. a legacy event and so you you seem to be um drawn to these older eternal formats so what what is it exactly about these older formats well initially it was like i like i was playing magic between 94 95 all the way up until after Invasion, so I think 2000, 2001, when I stopped playing for almost nine years. And then 2010, I got back into the game. Uh, I was playing a casual game of Magic at my friend's house, and I was thinking, like, damn, it's been 10 years, and I used to really, really, I used to play this every day. So I started looking online, like I found Card Kingdom. And at first, I didn't even know that there were these formats in 2010. Uh, so I was just buying cards that I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. I was buying like Royal Assassins and Explorations and all these like older cards that I really enjoyed back in the day. And then I found that there's actually mm -hmm. a format called Legacy. Um, and it, it was, you know, you could play with Dual Lands, you could play with Force of Will, you could play these older cards that were good then and they're good in this kind of mm -hmm. fresh format that everyone seems to be playing as well. Um, I didn't like standard because I wasn't, I didn't want to make a deck that will rotate out in a year and a half. Like I wanted to make a deck that I could, you know, mm -hmm. use after several years. So yeah, the nostalgia, the the older cards that were good when we were kids, they were suddenly good when we were adults. And now, yeah, it's been 13 plus years <laughs> since I put my first order on Card Kingdom in 20, uh, 2010 uh, and still playing and yeah not planning on quitting ever again <laughs> <laughs> for me as well uh what what is it about magic though i mean is it is there something that you can call out like is it is there something about the aesthetics of magic the gameplay the visuals the flavor of these things which ones do you think are the most attractive to you or the ones that have the most appeal to you I think the mana symbols are what kind of instantly come to my mind. It's just I remember just staring at the mana symbols on the cards and it's, it gives me the same kind of excitement and nostalgia still today when I look at them. Uh, and then it's just about them. Like I've always been kind of, I've enjoyed doing maths at school and it's this kind of calculating things and, you know, um, kind of planning your turns ahead and thinking about what my opponent will do and this kind of I think it's just the whole environment within a game is very appealing to me and it was a, as a kid as well like I as a kid I was always thinking several like turns ahead okay what's my sequ what, what my sequence will be what's my game plan I have these cards I'm going to play this and then if they play this I'm going to play this or this and this sort of planning planning the entire game felt really really nice and then the maths kind of involved in that as well but yeah the mana symbols 
are like particularly nostalgic. Especially the older ones, <laughs> the older versions of the of the mana symbols. I want to get back to um, your music. Uh, this is <laughs> this is an area that I'm I, I'm really really fascinated by, and because you you mentioned that in, in the in in naming your uh, or having an artist named Kupla, you were you were trying to do things. You're creating for yourself, right? So <laughs> how did you? How did you take that journey to, I assume you're a full-time artist now. So how, how did you make that step? Like what, what, what kind of things happened around you as you were releasing music or what, what was your journey like, you know, when you, I guess it was what, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, like describe that journey, how you, how you became, uh, who you are now, basically musically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've. I think since I was 16, I was kind of dreaming about making music full time. But around that time, I think there wasn't, YouTube wasn't there. There was none of these streaming platforms. The the kind of infrastructure, digital infrastructure around this wasn't existing yet. Um, so yeah, about 10 years ago, when I was moving to London, I thought, okay, maybe this like studying sound arts, this will probably, I'll make connections within the kind of sound world and music industry. Uh, I wasn't thinking of making, ever making it, like making my own own music. I was more kind of planning to do any kind of studio work, whether it's recording or just like running recording sessions or this sort of stuff. So whilst I was studying, I met um, this Chinese guy called Hawi Li, who was from Beijing. He's one of the kind of pioneers within the kind of Chinese electronic music scene. And he's a couple of years older than I was, and he was already doing music full time. And I was really like, he was kind of mentoring me into, okay, you should do this, you should release your stuff. And I wasn't releasing anything back then. So he was saying, okay, this is good, why don't you release this? And he was helping me kind of push it, push it forward. And he knew uh, some people in London who were running record labels and, you know, we'd go have drinks with them. And I'd, I was kind of, I wasn't fully committed yet then but I was kind of observing from the sidelines okay what what are these guys doing so but from him he kind of pushed me to to release my stuff that was kind of the first step like you can't do anything if you don't release if you don't have a like a portfolio of music you have to release music so he really helped me into understanding that and then through the university I got involved in these um I go into this program that we were making music for for dance productions, like the dance theater. And I got really involved and really enjoyed that. So I was working with a couple of choreographers um, on, a, on a few productions and I was making like ambient stuff for the background, some beats. And around that time I was thinking, okay, maybe this is it. Like this is, this is the thing I want to do. I want to push this theater music, dance production stuff forward. And I was doing that for, for a while, but... Um, in the end, I was still like it happened or it always happened. So I was come, I would come back home from rehearsals or from work or whatever. And I'd start making music that whatever my mindset was in at that moment. So I would start improvising. I would start recording my piano things, my experimenting with synths and melodies and, and making beats that I kind of liked listening to. Um, 
and I just started releasing stuff. Uh, at first, as often as I could, you know, I was working full time, so there wasn't that much time to do it. But after a few releases, I think I did my first release in 2014, like the official kind of EP release uh, with a record label. And then I did probably like an EP of six tracks or so every year. And in 2017, so three years later, um, I released uh, this album called In the Forest Were Wizards, which is, you can kind of guess where those, <laughs> that name comes from. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it, it was kind of the tied nostalgia to, you know, childhood memories of just running in the forest as well as, you know, playing magic. And it just felt really fitting. But anyway, I, I released that EP. At that time, I was, uh, I had already landed a job in my field. So I was working in a kind of recording studio environment doing like voiceover, voiceover stuff, but still it was in the audio realm and not in a warehouse um, where I was working previously. Mm. But yeah, after that release, it somehow picked up steam on Spotify. It got into like one of the opening track uh, within like two months, got on the Spotify viral top 50 charts. Like it was charting and I was, I had maybe 10,000 streams on all my tracks combined together back then. And suddenly one of these tracks was making that amount in a day, like essentially doubling the streams I had mm. every day. Uh, so I was thinking, okay, there's something here. And then um, I was, at that time I was always, like I, I saved up all the money that I was earning from the job as well. I was thinking, okay, if, if there's ever a time to save up money up front for, for rent and food and everything, like now is the time. This album is picking up steam. Let's see where this goes. And six months later, uh, it was racking up more streams than ever before. And I started making as much as I was making from the day job in the in the recording studio from from that album, essentially. So I was thinking, okay, I have 18 months of rent saved up. This album is making me more money than my day job. So I'm going to see one or two more months, what what happens? I'm, I'm preparing for another EP. And around that time, uh, several like Chill Hop Music and Chilled Cow around and that time, now Lo-Fi Girl, those kind of like bigger uh, record labels in that instrumental hip hop, chill hop scene where they were contacting me and saying, okay, we've heard this new album that you made. Is there anything you want to send our way? So I started communicating with these guys um, and through them, I met a lot of other producers in Europe um, online. We were chatting, we were making like groups and talking about um, music in general, how to release music, what distributors. So you use a distributor to distribute music to Spotify as, an, as, a, as a freelance artist or as a self-employed. So you don't have to have a record label. You can release your stuff, self-release your stuff there. You just need a distributor. So we were talking about how to use these things and what kind of, what, what you need. Um, but yeah, that was the kickstart. And then I started working with the labels and I kind of took the conscious decision. Okay, I have 18 months of rent saved up. Even if it goes, goes, goes to zero now, I have a little bit over a year that I can travel and meet these meet these people face to face. So I went to, to Rotterdam to Chill Hop Music's uh, offices, met a lot of, um, other like-minded producers there 
and yeah I just I wanted to travel Europe and meet these people and form connections and I was thinking okay if we're all doing this now this will probably go go somewhere so yeah then that was kind of the formula and for the past five years that's pretty much been the formula uh well covid happened and wasn't allowed to travel which is a shame and then family happened and all these things so but you know at least the groundwork was laid around that time by traveling meeting people face to face i think that was the major major point to to know these people who they are in real life it's way better to keep up with the communication and have that relationship going when you when you know them in person when you look back at your your biggest hit the one that blew up on spotify the one that catapulted you into believing that maybe this could be a a career is there something about that track that if you look back on it objectively like is there something that is there some sort of secret to that like is there do you have you thought about or have you figured out why it went viral on spotify like why it was such a a big hit i mean arguably that's the biggest thing you've ever done right so how wh what's the story behind that have you thought about it mm, it's hard to kind of pinpoint one thing I, I think it was a it was a combination of things i learned at when i was studying sound arts to kind of have a signature thing that no one else is doing so i was recording a lot of stuff acoustically like keys rattling so the track i'm talking about is emerald the opening track from uh in the forest were wizards but there's a lot of there's a lot of acoustic like really fine details that aren't necessarily the 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 meat of the track but there's like me like like handling keys and it's lots of sort of like this asmr vibe that really kind of makes you relaxed and I was also recording myself like inhaling and exhaling like like these sort of like tiny elements that I don't know if you're not listening to it carefully they might just you might not even hear them but a lot of people have told me that they've listened to my tracks 20 times and they're always hearing something different or something new in them so I think that's mm -hmm. part of the appeal and what I also especially with good headphones that's important yeah yeah so i'm always trying to yeah. add fine details and add these layers of sound that can't be replicated and even i can't rep replicate them because they're a one-off thing in that moment just like touching whatever things i have available or collected from outside and just like seeing what kind of sounds they make and then putting those in the track yeah, they can create really interesting atmospheres and like this fingerprint of a sound that's that can't be really but yeah acoustic recordings those are essential i want to know how does one this is going to sound like a very simple reductive question but how does one get better at making music making it every day i think that's the simplest answer you just have to practice and practice. It's the same with anything, really. Uh, you have to want it. You have to want to do it. And you have to do it even when you don't want it. <laughs> I think that's my recipe. So at 
essentially, I try to sit down every day and make something. Even when I'm not feeling like it, I just want to sit down and get it out of the way. I think Ed Sheeran said in one interview once that the creativity is like a like a tap that sometimes like rusty water comes out. But just you have to let it out, otherwise the clear water won't come. So it's I think it's very on point. That's exactly how it feels like. Some days you sit down and nothing comes out. Even like you might feel like, okay, this is the day, this is the day, today we're making something great. And you sit down and you have the most amazing vibe to to record and jam and play and then you hit record and it's just not quite hitting the mark. And you can't really pinpoint what it is because the, the feeling you had going into the session was great, like everything was aligned to make something brilliant, but then nothing comes out and it can be really frustrating. And the more you do it the more you sit down every day you just realize that that's part of the the gig <laughs> that's bound to happen that will happen in the future it's happened before there's no need to worry you just work as long as you can hopefully at least a couple of hours just to see because sometimes it could be after 45 minutes you take a little break you have a cup of coffee you come back and then something great comes out suddenly unexpectedly um but yeah you just have to sit down and and put put in the hours really uh obviously it helps like when you're studying like practicing instruments uh, if you just you know if you're just playing the same four chord song year after year you're not improving you're just playing the same thing so you have to consciously put yourself out of your comfort zone and and try something hard something you can't do and that's really rewarding like i you know, I've get into the these phases of rehearsing the same things that I know I can do and feeling great about it. But it gets boring after a while and then you want to try something harder. But you don't want to practice or try something too hard that you absolutely have no idea how to do. So you have to find a great balance where you can learn and kind of... It's hard enough that you have to really try, but it's not that hard that you can't do it at all. And then that you raise the bar of where your skill level is and it gets higher and higher and and you don't feel like progressing. You don't feel like you're pro- progressing or you don't feel like you're learning anything really. But then when you look back like two years back where, where you were then, you realize, okay, actually a lot of things have happened here. I've learned this and this. and So yeah, it's like going to the gym. It's horrible at first, but if you just keep on going there, it gets easier. <laughs> Uh, same with any kind of sports, really, or any kind of job, really, I think. As amazing as it is making music full-time, it is your full-time job as well. So it's not, you know, you have those days when it's mundane and you don't feel like doing it. But, you know, it's my choice. I wouldn't have anything differently. So, and, you know, can't really complain when... You can do that stuff, so there are days that aren't that great, but then there are days that are really good. So I think um have you heard about the the rule of thirds? Um I recently just heard about it. It was it's just about work in general, but I feel like it can apply to a lot of different disciplines. It's basically like saying that you should expect if you're doing something challenging and fulfilling that a third of the time, you're going to feel really bad. 
a third of the time you're going to feel really great. And the other third of the time you're going to feel just pretty mediocre or average. Um, and for me, that was kind of a, a wake up call, right? Because if every day is really bad, then you're probably burning out. If every day is really good or fine, that means you're probably not challenging yourself enough. So it's just something that I heard recently that or read about recently that really resonated with, with me. I, I not, not, not just for music, I think, because I, I, I don't make music, but I feel like it, it's, um, I, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. There, I think there's something universal about that where some days are just not great. And some days are, are, are better. And you don't really have an awful lot of control over that. It's just, you just have to expect, or you have to accept maybe that that happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that's, those are wise words. Um, because, you know, if every day is just brilliant and great, you know, where's the, where's the contrast? How do you know then you're raising the bar of what's great for you mentally? And then if you're constantly there, it becomes your normal. So you need to have these ups and downs. You need to have the diversity, uh, in order to, you know, separate the highs from the lows. Mm -hmm. And I think just riding that train up and down is you, yeah, you just have to, it helps if you, if you can calm your mind and you can be like observant of your mental state and where you are on that train ride at the moment. Because when you can pinpoint the low moments and the high moments, you can appreciate them more and you know that, okay, this low point won't last forever. And, you know, same for the high high moments that they won't last forever. But you can at least appreciate them and kind of live in the moment a little bit more. Mm. Yeah, so it's a lot of kind of fine-tuning your mental state into, you know, you, as you said, you can't predict what's going to happen. It's out of your control. So what's in your control, you know, focus on that. How many hours a day you're sitting down and training, practicing. What's your intention? What do you want to accomplish? What's your goals? All these things are important. Um, nothing will ever, ever go as planned. But if you don't have a set of goals or a trajectory, nothing will e happen either. So you have to try and you have to kind of think about those goals and those, that trajectory. Sometimes you have to, you know, adjust course. Uh, but if you keep those in mind, then the up, the up, the lows and the highs, you know, they become part of the journey and yeah, as simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know though, how, how, how did you keep that motivation when times were tough? Because I never, I never think of art or any kind of craft as a straight line for you. How did you, it's great. You told me your, your philosophy or your, the way you handle it. Right. But how, how do you deal with it during the, the toughest times? Um, how do you keep your motivation maybe is a, is a better question. 
Yeah, so I think I accepted several times whilst I was making music after a long day at work. Like back in London, I'd I'd take the the tube, the metro, to work like one hour and twenty minutes one way, and then spend nine, eight to nine hours there, and then another hour and a half back home, make some dinner. You know, the day is essentially over at that point. So how do you have the energy to sit down and make music that's not guaranteed to take you anywhere? I guess it's just I have, I felt like I have to do it. It was something I enjoyed so much doing that even when I didn't feel like doing it, I wanted to do it. In in a sense that I accepted that I will do this for the rest of my life, even if I'm working twelve hour shifts in a in a day job that aren't that isn't necessarily for me. I would still make music just because it's just something I feel like I have to do. I can't remember. I I listened to a podcast uh, a while back where this author, uh, this author, they asked like, well, how how did you, like, how do you come up with the writing? And it's very similar to music. And I can't remember the name of the author now, but he said that it's like a compulsion that you you don't become an author if you want to become an author. It's just there's no choice. You just you just do it. And you accept that I will do this, even if it never, you know, even if it doesn't doesn't become my job, I will still still do do this every day. So, I don't know. At times there were no motivation, but it's just getting better at production, and it just gave me a lot of joy. And it just it's this one, it's these few things in life that gives me this. I can sit down and I forget to eat and I forget to drink and I forget everything. So essentially it's, you get into the flow state and you're just like going. And when you come out of it, yeah. it's, it's like you're coming back home from a trip. It's just like, you're like, what happened? Like suddenly you're like, so many things went through your <laughs> head and you're not even like processing it. It's, and the best part is like yeah. when you're not even doing the work, you're just like automatically you're just observing your hands do the movements and tweaking things and you, but that takes time to get into the, it takes practice to get into the kind of state where you can just like automatically create stuff. It takes hours and hours and hours of practice mm -hmm. before it becomes automatic. But at first, you know, first it was fun. Yeah. It was a fun hobby. Then it became something much more an obsession and a kind of a lifestyle, I think. Well, it's like the, um, the podcast that you listen to, like it says, it's almost like, uh, it chooses you, right? It, 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 it it's in a, in a lot of ways, you're not choosing music, music chose you like you it's, if it's an obsession or if you're, if, if it's a compulsion, you're almost, um, uh, what's the word obliged to follow it. Because yeah. I, I, I don't know. Maybe this sounds a little bit silly, but sometimes I feel like when I'm, when I'm doing a podcast, like when I'm doing this kind of thing, I, that's like the most fun I have, right? Like I'm, I'm literally doing this interview with you. It's nine p.m. I had a a twelve-hour workday before this um, for the day, and I like my job, and I, I think I'm decent at it. But this is a whole nother thing that I, I just like, I'm just doing this for free, right? I'm not doing this to, to get, to get paid. It's just, it's just, and there's been times where I've actually been in 
a flow state during a conversation and it's or sometimes when I when I used to do more writing like it, it was just um actual writing it was on a keyboard and it was just it's just um it's those moments that make you come back or at least for me because I want to chase that possibility that I can get to that place even though 99 times out of 100 interviews that's that's not going to happen but it's there's, there's just something you know what i mean right it's just something that you're always chasing that or it becomes a part of you yeah yeah and i think i feel like it kind of extends time in a weird way like say that an hour or even just 20 minutes in the flow state can feel like hours and that's what i don't know it just kind of feels like you're cleaning up your brain like you're getting this interesting like time dilation effect happening where you kind of suddenly wake up and you're like whoa <laughs> what, what was that and it can it, it can you know you carry it with you for, for a while that when you when you reach that feeling and i think that's the kind of what yeah what you strive for what i want to know is you mentioned consistency and challenging yourself, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm still curious about what separates Kupla from somebody that, you know, has played music for 5,000 days in a row. And maybe they are challenging themselves. They're learning new songs or they're learning new techniques. They're trying to level up a bit, but is there something that still separates you from someone who is maybe doing that and sort of plateauing, right? From a performance perspective, how, how, I guess another way to ask the question is if we assume that you grow by pushing yourself in the right ways, how do you know how much to, to push and how much to rest? Mm, I guess it comes to your how much pain are you <laughs> ready to endure uh, because growing and learning is quite painful um, and you have to you have to accept that it's not easy and you have to be able to kind of push through it regardless uh, I feel like my pain tolerance is really high um, I'm quite systematic uh, in how I plan things and how I want to get things done. Um, and if it means sacrificing things that are, you know, pleasurable in the near term, I can push those aside. I wasn't always like that. I feel like this job taught me how to do this. I have to, because you have to plan for the future. That's how this whole industry works essentially like you release a track today and you won't see a dime until three months later so that's essentially the first bit kind of if you're thinking about like you know paying rent and this sort of stuff uh you have to plan ahead hope like ideally years ahead so that that means that any kind of instant gratification goes out the window you have to plan for things and set up your daily routines in a way that they carry you for years. Um, 
and yeah you know some some people just don't like that kind of rigidness of their i'm kind of my, like my everyday is pretty much the same essentially like that's how i i feel like i work the best in that in that sense so wake up at the same time do the same things at the same time it's kind of like the groundhog's day <laughs> but that's how you get things done like you mm -hmm. you do the same things over and over and day after day and then suddenly you look back and you're like okay i've consistently been doing this and we've built up into this what we are now so that's the the way what the first question was what separates from the person who's been making music for five thousand years uh, five thousand <laughs> days in a row i think <laughs> yeah i think i think i think the intention has to be there so if you're you have to have some kind of inner dialogue of where you want to go and what is it what are the intentions what are the what is the meaning of what you're doing uh like when i was when i was 14 or 15 just around those times when i when i stopped going to piano classes uh that's the moments where i really started to question what's what's the point like what's the reason i was basically practicing because my piano teacher wanted me to practice and we might have like one show a year where we were playing to the parents of the students in the conservatory and that was like the you know the thing to look forward to that i hated i didn't like performing live there and i think that's the reason why i stopped going as well because the expectations were coming from somewhere else they were i was practicing because i felt like i had to please the piano teacher or whatever um but yeah it's like you have to create meaning around the thing that you do and ideally from your daily life ideally from your experiences you have to have some kind of connection how do you channel those emotions and how do you channel those feelings and experiences that you've had into something else um i think the intention separates a lot of people who are just like making stuff for fun like obviously everyone starts making stuff because they enjoy doing it but i feel like if you want to make something that lasts a bit longer you need to have a an intention behind it you need to have a story to tell um, and it's not easy always like sometimes where does the like sometimes I'd make a song and it would sound great but if you if you don't have a story attached to it it might seem a bit hollow and sometimes it happens that the story comes later mm. you create something that's you really nailed the vibe here you got the the emotions just right and the structure and everything is perfect but but the kind of intention and the story isn't there just yet so it's funny like i'd say 50 percent of the time i work i work backwards like that so just improvising and recording stuff and putting things together that sound good but it just it doesn't feel like a, a whole and then maybe months later something happens and i'm thinking okay this thing that happened fits here i mean mm. it's funny sometimes it's just some, something happens and you create music into that it's the other way to do it i feel like that's the quicker way to do it 
but you have to have at least you have to be able to explain what is here are are you saying that sometimes sometimes your life just like music is just sometimes part of it is your life so sometimes something just happens and then you're just connecting and then you you go back it, it, did i understand what you're saying yeah, correctly yeah. like it, there's almost like just something sparks okay yeah absolutely something like um it can be as simple as you know a walk in the woods you know seeing a deer you know just observing them and seeing how they react to you and how they look around and it's just it can trigger this state of mind where or this state of wonder i feel like it's what triggers me the most is this kind of like wondering how they got here wondering how they function what they might be thinking about how this thing even works that we call life <laughs> um but yeah to me i, I feel mm. like this kind of wonder is what sparks it oftentimes and then there's things like you know someone close you passing away or these kind of things that trigger really big emotions that can act as a trigger as well but in general if there's like a gray day where you don't feel like well actually i mean even on those days something really good can come out because when you're well, like how i make music is essentially i it's 90 percent improvisation so i sit down i take whatever instrument i have at hands piano clarinet flutes melodica uh, guitars wh whatever i feel like okay i'm just gonna jam on this one and you start playing and improvising and then that improvisation gets you into a state of mind maybe you're it's sort of like therapy so you're unconsciously at least going through these things and then it can channel into a melody or a chord sequence um, and sometimes yeah as I said like attaching the story to the track later like it can because sometimes it happens so quickly sometimes that you can play something and it sounds instantly sounds good and you're just working on it and you're not even really focusing on the intention or the meaning that much right there and then but there is something behind there it's coming from somewhere so then just pinpoint that and a tangent i just just feel like whenever making music the quicker it comes out the better it usually usually is so if there's a track that you've been working on for three days uh and it just feels like it's not going anywhere those are the kind of tracks that rarely get released but instead if you're sitting down and 90 minutes later you have a whole track that's usually a really good sign that you entered the flow state and it just came out <laughs> Are there tracks that you've honestly don't know? Like it's probably different for every artist, but how much of your finished or nearly completed works do you actually release? Is it like are you are you fairly certain by by the time that it's done because of the, what what you described the circumstances in which it came out? Did it come out fast? Did it come out slow? Does that do you? I guess the way to ask the question is how much of your catalog that you've worked on do you actually release do you do you keep do you release a lot of it do you scrap a lot of it what's your process i scrap most of it 
I'd say to give out a figure, I'd say I probably release about 20% of the material that I release. Uh, maybe 25% nowadays. It's been growing a little bit. Like earlier years, I would make hours and hours on end of stuff that never comes out. Like be, uh, like before, I would say that maybe 10% of the songs, like one in 10 songs that I create, may pr I'd probably release. So for an album of 10 tracks, I might have made, made 100 songs. Uh, but nowadays, it's it's not as much. I'd say for an album of 10 songs, I'd probably make around 40 songs nowadays. Sometimes even as as, as little as 30 but but still, majority of the stuff gets scrapped, and uh, that it's a conscious conscious choice to leave most of it out. So you can choose songs that fit together when they're played after one another. Sometimes I, you know, I take out a song even though it's perfectly fine and I really enjoy it, but it's just because it doesn't fit anywhere in the release. So then it might be released later on a later album or as in a compilation through a label. Uh, but at least, you know, they, this it gives me more wiggle, wiggle room in the sense that I've, I have kind of a catalogue of tracks. If, say, a label approaches me and say, we are doing this compilation album for in the theme of falling leaves in the in the autumn, you know, could you submit a few tracks for consideration? And I can instantly reply to that email and say, here's three tracks. So I don't have to make anything from scratch at that point. So I can just say, I have hundreds and hundreds of tracks that, you know, could be released, but just I haven't released. When you make the tracks, is it, are you making it for somebody else? Are you making it for yourself? Is it important that somebody listens to it as opposed to just yourself I think it's important um, primarily I make it so that I enjoy it and I get a good feeling out of it but essentially that good feeling that I get out of out from it when people enjoy it other people enjoy it and tell me that they've enjoyed this song it amplifies the great feeling that I get from making the track as well. So, yeah, like when Kupla started uh, in 2011, 2012, and that was the reason to just make stuff for myself. But, you know, back then no one was listening to this stuff, so I wasn't aware of how we, it would make me feel. But it definitely amplifies the good feeling. So, yeah, um, <laughs> Whenever I'm making a song and I really enjoy it, I'm also hopeful that other people will like it as well and listen to it. But at the same time, if they don't, you know, at least I can I can listen to it. It's out of my it's, <laughs> it's, it's out of my control, really. I guess what I'm wondering is like, is there is there some sort of musical equivalent of a private journal or a private diary? You know how. Sometimes I write things for public consumption. I put it in a newsletter or a blog or on Twitter or wherever a crazy place that's external. But sometimes you're writing things just for yourself. Is there is there such a thing for you when it comes to to music, or is that just completely separate from the Kupla work? 
so I I have these kind of side projects that I haven't released so uh, I've made like classical music with just piano and clarinet that I've been meaning to release for a long time but I haven't and I listen to it weekly that release so I have about 10, 10 tracks of this kind of film music-ish material it's quite emotional and I really enjoy listening to it but I haven't found the time or the place to kind of put it out just just yet it will come out one at, at some point for sure well that's something that could fit that category and also like thinking about journaling so all my projects are in I can put them in chronological order like from the save dates on my computer and on my hard drives so it's funny like I'm just listening to an old um old song that I made say 2016 or 2015 October and I, I I can't pinpoint what I did in October in 2015 but when I open up that track and I listen to it I remember exactly the room I made it in mm. and what was happening that day maybe not necessarily exactly that day but at least I remember that feeling I had and what was going on in my life that day so it's like even though there are no words written down right. I can still remember like Every song that I've made, when I listen to back to it, I can it kind of transports me back in time into that moment when it was created, and into that room and into that apartment. And it's especially like vivid in when we were living in London and we were moving houses like every nine months or so. Um, it's it's kind of it's kind of weird in a sense. Mm -hmm. Like if my wife asked me, like, do you remember the the years we were living in this and this flat and Mm. I was thinking, I'm not sure what, what were the dates, but then when I listen to a track that I made in that apartment, it instantly takes me back there, and I can check the time, the date saved for that project. Okay, yeah, it was mm. around this time. It's a really strange feeling, right? It's it's like a really specific time machine that only works in one vector. Like, uh, and I, even though I'm not a an artist or a musician, I do have a sense of what you mean because when I listen to just music in general, it, it just takes you back, right? It just, it, even if I haven't created that track, like I'll listen to the Smashing Pumpkins, you know, from the 90s. I'll listen to a track. I was listening to, what was the track? Mayonnaise like the other day. Yeah, and yeah, it just, yeah. it from... just takes me back to when I was 10 years old or 15 years old, it's, it's just, it's just magical, right? It's just, yeah. that's, that's honestly one of the greatest gifts that music has given us uh, humankind is that teleportation time machine yeah. kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually I was listening to Siamese dream by smashing pumpkins, the album just like two days ago. And it just takes me to this very particular mm -hmm. moment in my childhood where I had this CD player, this Iowa CD player that kept on like skipping when it, when it was shaked. But I was, I was observing my cousins play tennis and I was just singing next to the, where they were playing on, on this bench and just listening to it on a summer day. Yeah. It's, it's a great album by the way, but yeah, it's a, it's an interesting feeling and it <laughs> it does work for me with other, all the kinds of music yeah. it's just like I remember the day I f heard it for the first time and I remember the days when I connected with it in a more like deeper deeper emotional level uh, and what what's happened mm -hmm. you know so many mm -hmm. memories attached to this it's like mm -hmm. 
for me at least, I feel like music is the strongest trigger. But smell is also, I think already on a science magazine somewhere, that smell, the sense of smell is also a very like kind of nostalgic time and place triggering uh, sense. Uh, so when you smell like, I remember this, there was this old transport museum somewhere in central Finland, Finland that we used to go to maybe twice a year. And they 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 had this old mm. bus from the nineteen fifties, and I just remember the smell of the of the benches in the bus, like this old like leather seat smell, and I just I had I'd forgotten about that experience completely, and I just mm. I smelled the same smell like a year ago somewhere. I don't know if it was even real or maybe was it like a a hallucination, because I don't know where that smell came from. But it's just like. Popped yeah, into imagined. my head, and I, I smelt it in my nose, and just like the smell of the 1950s old bus in that transport museum, like almost 25 years ago, like how <laughs> weird that it came into my mind. But yeah, same like if you have your like a cologne that your dad used to use, or you know, any kind of smell, it's really can really take you back. For me, it's kind of that's the magic of. Magic cards, pun intended, right? Because magic cards have the smell, but they also take me back to when I was playing at that time, right? And so for me, the eternal formats are, even though it's in a completely different context now, right? It's in a completely different deck, but just the memories of a specific card or specific image or something like I, I would like play a magic card and it would remind me of when I was reading about it in inquest magazine and it would also remind me of when I was trying to buy that card in a store in the 90s or 2000s and there's those those connections are really are really interesting there the some of the some of the analog things in in life they really um they really take me back and I try not to be too nostalgic because I think it's also kind of weird if you're constantly living in the past because I think life is about progress and moving forward and growing but I also I like once in a while to be able to go back to that and there's there's just some sort of comfort in in that because for me it's also combined with some his history of accomplishment uh, of things that I have done in the past people I've met and that's something that I really I guess it's just a really long way to say I love things that are time capsules that can take me back yeah absolutely um yeah and I, I don't know it's just mm, Yeah, kind of the balance between the nostalgia and thinking for the future. But I feel like it's how I think about nostalgia right now. It's like having a kid now. He's one and a year, one and a half years. Um, I'd like to provide an environment that he can be nostalgic about in the future, as I'm nostalgic about my childhood. Mm. I think that's something that's. It feels like a circle kind of coming to an end and then another one starting. It's, it's a strange feeling. Yeah. What what's um what is it like to be a father? 
so many things attached to it. Um, so yeah, we had our firstborn son uh, exactly one year and a half ago. Um, completely, well, I mean, you know, he was expected and wanted and everything, but still completely unprepared. Uh, I, I don't think anyone can be prepared. Um, after the, the first phases of lack of sleep and, you know, staying up every day uh, and every night, uh, it kind of, well, he grows with you, he learns things from you, and it happens so quickly. And you feel like you're not, um, I mean, obviously you are growing as well, but they're growing so much quicker. Um, and it's just thrilling to watch what he comes up with, because he's a completely different person. Uh, and yeah, I really enjoy it. Like I, I work from home. I, I have the luxury of being here every day as well. So, um, at first I didn't like it because of the lack of sleep, because I'm a big sleeper. I enjoy my rest and that was taken away. So I was quite grumpy and quite irritated for, for, for several months. Um, but with like good planning and, you know, good planning and him getting older and eventually sleeping better. Uh, it's kind of like grown into me that I really enjoy it. Uh, yeah, I think it's a thing that, you know, it evolves constantly, like being a father, being a dad. Uh, you have to appreciate every moment, I think, and you have to also consciously think about what kind of example you do, do you want to get. So that's, you're improving yourself because you want to be uh, the best possible example. So having the kind of calm and, yeah, so I mean, I, I'm kind of naturally quite calm, but not always. So it's taught me a lot of patience, even though I, you know, I, I'm quite patient already, but you know, with a, with a toddler, <laughs> you can never have enough patience. Uh, so, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, yes. it's like, it's like Kids the same test your patience. Exactly. Yes. And it's like the same roller coaster as it with the creative process and the kind of you know, any job, uh, just life in general, you have your ups and you have your downs and uh, it's just, you know, being aware enough to to understand when the good moments are and when the bad moments are and how none of those last forever. Has being a father affected your music? How has it, has it changed the way you approach music or your sound or anything like that? Mm. Well, the, the most obvious thing is that the schedule is even more rigid than it was before. Uh, so I have to, I can't just make stuff whenever I feel like it. I have other things that I have to put first in my life. And that's not the music. That's the, the kid. Um, so yeah, times of day when he's asleep, 
that's the times when I can focus most on making music. So that's the kind of practical side of it. The more emotional side of it is there's so many new emotions that have come with being a father. And surprisingly enough, they do come <laughs> into the music. So one example would be the the song Rituals. Uh, that was on the the most recent album released in February 2023. 20, um, so I was when the baby was not sleeping well, I composed this lullaby on a kalimba, which is like this finger uh, piano. Um, so I initially composed it to kind of calm him down and it wasn't really working. I thought about the track, I thought it was really like sleep inducing and nice, but it just didn't work. But I made it anyway and I played it a few times and I realized that it's not what he wants. I really like the melody. I re really enjoyed the track. <laughs> so I had to record it and I had to kind of create a song out of it. And that's Rituals, uh, which is kind of the name even like implies to like the, when talking about the meaning and the story behind. So Rituals is kind of the daily rituals for me, like getting up, doing these family family things. Also Magic dark rituals but the family rituals aren't that dark luckily <laughs> how do you feel about spotify music platforms like spotify I, I think you and i both come from a world where music was not discovered or produced or discovered that way uh, obviously spotify had a a huge influence or impact on you as a as a musician as a creator but do you have any overall thoughts about platforms like Spotify? Mm. I think that's they're reaching a point where it's the most convenient way to consume music when it comes to the monetization and how different, like how artists or like rights holders are compensated. Um, I think there's still a lot of room for improvements but in terms of ease of access it's like when you think about like when I was or we were growing up as well it was like radio uh, maybe like C cassettes vinyls CDs then maybe later mini discs uh, when you compare music streaming to these like kind of rigid and these physical formats uh, it's so much more convenient in in my opinion um, Spotify sound quality is not great in my opinion there are better options for that if you're like an audio uh, nerd and you want to get the best out of best sound quality out of uh, out of everything that's something that they could improve improve upon um, but in terms of usability I feel like we are reaching a point where it's harder to find innovations to to find something that's more convenient and more fitting for the everyday user me included like it's so easy to just turn on Spotify and just whatever you're driving or 
on your phone or you know having your headphones it's just we've been like with my music friends we've been talking about this quite a lot that some of them feel like music streaming killed music but i feel like it it didn't it kind of did the opposite it brought it to every moment mm. maybe it made it less special in a sense that it's always accessible but i feel like the internet did that to many things to your attention from your attention span to mm. like games to films and you know you browse netflix and there's a million things to watch and you browse it for half an hour and you can decide what to do and then you just turn it off <laughs> so this is the kind of like <laughs> you have so many different choices that uh, yeah whereas previously you turn on music t television and there's you know there's the prodigy playing and that's what you'd listen to and there's nothing else or the radio you know like two channels or three channels yeah yeah exactly so you have to you know you know it's good and bad mm -hmm. you have to consciously I mean it will be for kids like growing up into this world like I feel like I'm well, we are kind of lucky in the sense that we experienced both worlds like when we were kids we didn't have the internet in in the sense it is now like there was internet was kind of coming up but it didn't have everything at any given moment so you have to really you have to be able to live in the moment and not think about all the possible options that you could be doing or could be listening or could be watching or you know you have to ground yourself consciously more nowadays than then Overall, I feel like for for me personally, I wouldn't change music streaming into any other things. Like I enjoy listening music on vinyl, and I have a lot of vinyls, but most of the t time I still choose Spotify, just because of the convenience of it. What are your thoughts about this uh, <laughs> this uh, sort of technology driven or? AI driven type of making art or making music. I think there's been some recent quite prolific examples of this, right? Where I guess, I guess mashups is one aspect of it, but I think it's also goes far beyond that, right? Because I think for the last decade or longer, there's been technologies that augment music, whether it's pro tools or you name it. Right. And, and like, where do you see this going? How do you feel about technology, not just AI, but just technology in relation to creativity or music? I think eventually AI will be able to generate any kind of creative work better than any human was ever, ever capable of making. And it's already like, you can see how quickly things evolved with like mid journey and these image generators. Mm. and it's going to video it's going to audio next it's already doing it yeah, the pace of development is a little bit scary but that's so sci-fi to me personally and I've always been a big sci-fi fan as well so I'm kind of intrigued by it even if it takes my job I, I mean I feel like there's still we're still it's still humans consuming, you know, the imagery, the audio. And I feel like humans are still 
they want an emotional connection. They want a story to be told. Obviously, AI can write pretty convincing and good stories already. But I'm hopeful that humans will want to hear and listen to stories and music made by other humans and from their perspective and understanding. And I feel like the intention and the storytelling will play a bigger role then. But eventually I feel like AI will be able to make uh, anything creative in terms of music and, and images. I mean, they're all AI is already making like Joe Rogan podcasts of like episodes that aren't there that sound completely <laughs> like plausible and real. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. it's an in interesting time to be alive. I'm pretty sure that. Yeah, first it was the the deep fake. Yeah. Yeah, for definitely interesting time to be alive. First it was the deep fake videos. Now it's the deep fake conversations. I am I am a little bit, not a little bit, I am mostly optimistic about it because I think at the end of the day, we want to consume art that we know is from, or 51% or higher from a human, right? I would assume that you're fans of yours, and I, I consider myself a fan of your work. We listen to your stuff because there's a, even though I don't know you personally, or fans don't know you personally, there's a there's a connection there, right? There's a body of work, there's a catalog that if they listen to something that you made five years ago, there's a continuity, right? They come back because of Kupla. They know it's the same person or same entity that made it. Um, that's the optimistic side of me talking. However, I guess that can also go away over time. Maybe maybe there's something to be said for convenience. Like we were talking about Spotify, maybe, maybe the convenience is going to make it so that in the future, I don't care how it's made as long as it's convenient. I can access it and I can listen to it uh, or I can watch it if it's a movie. I, I, I don't know, but uh, there, I'm, I'm still trying to be mostly optimistic. Like I'm sure there are a lot of people um, who might consume music purely as a as a means to do something else and those kind of like even like a lot of people use my music to study or sleep and um you know there's probably already companies that are making ai generated sleep and study music things and that's completely fine uh, and i feel like when i think about like going to the gym and listening to some kind of like upbeat or like up up tempo stuff when you're not consciously listening to it maybe i mean i might be wrong but i feel like those are the areas where it, it'll be it'll show first uh whereas then going to a concert to see someone play live uh that's a whole different experience and um at least for now you can't rec replicate that with ai mm. but yeah i mean Personally, at least, I mean, I, I will always be listening to. I'm interested in hearing what the AI can generate. I've yet to hear stuff that's really impressive to me, except for like the voice generation. So somebody did um, a Biggie Smalls track 
out of NOS track, the New York State of Mind. I don't know if you heard it. So they took um, Biggie Smalls, who died mm. a long time ago, and then AI generated the NOS song in Biggie Smalls' voice. And that was quite impressive. Like, I, I, I would be lying if I, if I said that I wouldn't want to hear an album of that. Um, but in, <laughs> but in terms of like, back like music, like the musical background, the beat, the song behind it, I've yet to hear AI generated stuff that I'm like very impressed with. Um, but the pace that it's going forward is like I, if I'm if I'm saying I'm not impressed today I might be impressed by the evening so it's just so it goes so quickly I'm sure we'll see AI <laughs> singularity previously I'd say within our lifetimes but I I would say what would be kind of right I'd say it's going to happen very quickly I mean, I, I don't work in that field. I don't, mm. you know, so it's hard for me to mm. give an estimate. But just judging from the pace that the image generators went from basically non-existent into being absolutely stunning within just like a year and a half, it's it's right. hard to predict what will happen because it grows so much quicker than humans do. But I, yeah, as as you said as well, like I'm quite positive... Like, I don't want to be all doom and gloom. I understand that there are risks involved and you you might need some kind of regulation and you need to be very, very cautious about these things. But I'm, my like, the undertone is still positive, so I'm sure that more good will come out of this. So ending on a, on a positive note, thank you, Kupla, so much for having the conversation with me today it was really really a lot of fun to to learn more about you to learn more about how you think about certain things your process and and your journey so the last question i want to ask you is what is the best place for people to reach you or to find your work well first of all thank you so much for taking the time to do this i know we're spoken a while now and we finally found the the time to do this uh, it's been a pleasure it was nice to talk talk with you um best place to find me and my music uh obviously is on spotify kupla on apple music any kind of streaming platform in order to reach me personally instagram is the best way so instagram slash kupla sound k-u-p-l-a sound um instagram is the easiest way um yeah, if you need to contact me personally, do it there. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, really. I hope to see you again at a, at a magic event somewhere in the world in the future. I really hope so, especially given that COVID is... Um, the COVID situation is a lot better, at least in China. So I, you know, I can travel again. I've actually cross borders for the first time in three years uh, recently. So I am really hopeful that uh, we'll be able to play a game of magic sometime. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Cool.